Welcome to the Cornerstone Christian Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jim Tarr. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit cccbasalt.com. Well, today we're going to dive into the book of Revelation. If you came here this morning, you, you saw that I let out a little bit late, so I'm going to be very good about getting you out on time to the best of my ability. So I'm going to talk fast and listen fast, right? So it's all very good. You know what? We are going to be establishing today in the book of Revelation what's going on in heaven while God is telling us what's going to go on the earth. From, from, for millennia, God has, through his prophets, told us there's going to be seven years that are going to come against the nation of Israel. And it's going to be a time of great global trouble. It's not hard to imagine global trouble anymore, is it? Where the Lord predicted it from the very beginning. This move towards, um, it's, it's really, if you look at it, and if you look at uh, trends that are going on in the world today, it, it's, it's a very subtle hatred of humanity. Looking at people as though they're disposable. Even here in the state of Colorado, I don't know if that in the last week, we reinforced forced our abortion laws because we are so determined to make sure that we can take human life. And then also, if you're following the state of Maryland now, is given 48 hours after the birth for there to be a determination for whether the child will be aborted or not. So that is just a whole nother level. Call it what you want, but that's murder. And so when we look at this, we understand that um, things are gearing up, but God is on the throne and he's victorious and we have the joy of the Lord today, and he's so good. So as we're looking at the book of Revelation, we had looked at the, the chapters that were written about the church, and that God spoke to seven churches that were very real during the time of the book of Revelation, but also, as we look at them, we see very seven distinct periods of church history. So then we find out that John hears the voice that says, come up here. And now we're going to watch in, in this chapter today what is unfolding in heaven. And what unfolds in heaven then begins to be unfolded on the earth during the seven-year period. So Revelation chapter 5, starting to read at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat ahead of you, and I'd recommend that you, um, it makes it easier if you follow along in the scriptures. And please forgive me, it's so easy for me. I, listen, I was nursed in Revelation. My parents, my dad being a pastor, I'm so familiar with these passages, but it's so easy for me to take for granted that you might know something that you don't. I want to remind all of you that Monday through Friday, I'm also releasing just five-minute um, blogs that you can watch. They're video blogs that you, if you want to receive it, you can give Pam your email address. It'll arrive in your email. You can go on YouTube and just put in... Um, Cornerstone Christian Center Basalt, and you can watch these five daily devotionals where I add a little bit more and um, give a little bit richer explanation of Revelation. So Revelation 5.1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or, or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seal. For you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, or on, or on the earth, or under the earth, or on the sea, and all the things in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be the blessing, the honor, the glory, and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, I ask now that you would, by the Spirit of God, make this word alive. Father, I pray that you would help me to be clear today and help everyone to hear clearly what the Spirit of God is saying. Thank you, God, that you are upon the throne. And thank you, Lord, that we would be called to live in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's look at the book of Revelation. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 5. Do you mind if we read those again? I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. As we're looking at this passage right here, if you look at the original language, some people have actually said that when John saw this vision, he burst into tears. It wasn't just that he had a little trickle going down the side of his face, but he was overwhelmed with the emotion of it, that there was a scroll that no one would, was worthy of to open in heaven, earth, or under the earth. Now, I want to describe this scroll to you. You know what a scroll looks like, either made of parchment or of leather, and it was rolled up, and it had seven seals on it. But to help you to understand that at the end of this scroll, after it was rolled up, it wasn't seven seals on the end of that scroll. But if you were to look at that scroll, it would have one seal on it, and then you would open it up and it would stop because there would be a second seal that would hold it. And then when the first piece of information was understood, the second seal was broken and they would unfurl the scroll further, and then each one of these seals was broken. And as we look at this passage, we have to ask ourselves, what is the seven-sealed scroll? And what is it about the nature of it that it would be unrolled in a sequence? And it's because we realize as we read this chapter that something is going to happen in heaven, and what is happening on heaven is going to be reflected upon the earth. What is this scroll all about? 
I want us to understand today, it's about the inheritance of what Jesus died for. It's the one that he was worthy to be able to take this scroll and open it up. Think about this. God is worthy of all things. He receives the same worship, of course, that Jesus does and vice versa. But Jesus is the one who is worthy and only one to open the scroll because he is the one who paid the price for this scroll to be unfurled. What does the scroll represent? It represents the title deed to the earth and to the universe. And that is Jesus coming into his inheritance and gaining back for mankind everything that was lost. So as we're looking at this today, we are going to be looking at the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And you're going to say to me at the end, that was way too much information, but I believe... (laughs) That you are going to understand, and I want to promise you that the Bible says in the book of Revelation that anyone who reads this book and studies it will be particularly blessed. So who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? I want to talk about something else that's sealed. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13? Ephesians 1, 13. Something else is sealed. When something is sealed, what does it mean? It's like when the king would dip his ring, signet ring, in the wax. It would seal it, but it would also mark it as authentic. That it's the real deal. And so in Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. If you are a Christian today, a true one, not just one that says, I I wear that label, but you've actually been made alive by God. You are ones that heard the truth and the gospel about how to be saved, how to be made right, right with God. And it says, having also believed. So you didn't just hear, but you believed. Who is the first installment of our inheritance? In regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Bible says that you, as a believer, have been sealed. Why? Because there's a title deed to your life. And Christ paid the price for you. And when a person would break the seal, as we're watching what's happening in heaven, as Jesus inherits everything back that man had lost, that they would break the seal of the scroll, and there would be a declaration of Christ the Lamb of God saying, this is my inheritance, and it would be fulfilled upon the earth. They'd break that seal and go to the next one. The Bible says the same thing is true of you, that you have been sealed, as, and you have received the Holy Spirit, the seal, which is the first installment of the inheritance. In other words, when you and I came to Christ, we might say, well, I inherited heaven or I inherited the promises of God. But primarily what you inherited when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ is that you inherited the indwelling and abiding spirit of God living and active inside of you. Even greater than the treasure of heaven is the treasure of the Holy Spirit. And that is the believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God himself, who can speak to the earth in his prayers and say, kingdom of God come and will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we're looking at this scroll, being unraveled in heaven, we're realizing that the kingdom of God that is in heaven is coming to earth. And the will of God that is in heaven is coming to earth. So you are a beautiful picture 
of this scroll, sealed, authentic child of God, a daughter of the Lord, a son of God, and in that you have received the down payment, the first installment of all that you're going to inherit. Do you know why it's just the first installment? Because you and I are going to see the day as believers when that scroll is unfurled and Jesus takes possession of all that he inherited. And the Bible says this about you. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And as he's receiving these things, you are receiving them as well. That's the blessing of the Messiah. That's the blessing of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who, 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 who lifts us up, strengthens us, and encourages us, and reminds us to hold on, because the day is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it says this, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit, the first down payment, the first deposit, the first inheritance. Those of you who have come to Christ have received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Oh, man, when you think about this, it's so amazing. All of creation right now is groaning. The animal world, even plants, they can be under the effects of the curse and of disease, of, of, of death and, and of sorrow. All of creation is groaning, waiting for the scroll in the book of Revelation to be unraveled so that all that God has created come in, comes in line with God's original purpose. The beauty of the Lord, all of creation is so that even when an animal is attacked, it will let out a noise, it will let out a groan because death is not in the heart of God. But the Bible says this, those of you who have been sealed and marked with the Holy Spirit, who have received the first fruits, the down payment of the full inheritance. Even you groan. It's not wrong if you groan. It's not necessarily unbelief, but it's understanding that you are caught between the diamond, a dynamic tension between the downward pull of the kingdom of darkness and the upward pull of the kingdom of light. And there's a tearing that goes on in the middle of the process. But we long for the moment when we will be fully redeemed, not just sealed with the Holy Spirit, but get everything that God intended for us. How beautiful is that? It's so amazing. We wait eagerly for our adoption. We wait all I've already received the spirit of adoption, but someday I'm going home, and I'm going to be living in the house, enjoying all its goodness. I long, I groan for that. I'm of a different spirit. You're of a different spirit. If you met Christ, you were sealed and marked with the spirit of God. That's why sometimes you go into a place and someone might just, they'll just turn on you and you haven't even had a, a, an interaction or whatever it might be. What is that? It's because they're sensing that you're of another spirit. You're the spirit of God. Christ dwells in you. And it's not against you. You can take it personal if you want. And it feels really personal to tell you the truth. But when all is said and done, the spirit of God inside of us See, men love darkness rather than light. And that's the truth. 
The Spirit of God can be alive in you today. If you've never met Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, know that today, as we just read, you're hearing the truth and the gospel of salvation, and Christ would call you to believe today. Place your faith and trust in him. doesn't mean you have to figure everything out before you come. Just say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't get it all, but I trust you. I'm making you my Lord and Savior. So when is this adoption going to happen? When is this amazing thing going to happen where we don't just have the first deposit, but we get everything? Well, that's called, we looked at it last week, it's called the rapture of the church, where we're caught into the fullness of the joy of all human expectation. Everything that is in the human heart, what it longs for, what it needs, what it craves, will be met in one moment. For those who are, have placed their faith in the Messiah, 1 John 3, 1 says, see how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God. And in fact, we are. In fact, we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because he, we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I want you to understand. I want to remind you today that in the moment that Jesus comes in the clouds, when your eyes are fixed upon him, the power of his gaze, those eyes that are filled with fire, will have such a transformative effect upon you and me that it will breathe into us the purity, all the purities of heaven. God's going to cleanse us and remove from us everything that holds us back, weighs us down, brings us to addiction, troubles our lives, interrupts our peace. All of those things in one moment will be gone and we will be like him and we will be transformed into his very image and glory. Oh, no, not just this process right now where I have the Holy Spirit and he's reminding me all, all the time about the things that need to be conformed to Christ, the things that need to be purified. And as I look to the coming of Christ, this Bible says that as I look for his coming, I purify myself. I work towards what's going to happen. But when he comes, all of the struggle will be gone with my flesh and I will enter into the fullness of the likeness of Jesus Christ. We will know him as he is. Oh, now I've just got the down payment. And it's wonderful, the life in the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who prepares me for this eternal life. But we think about this fact as we read this passage, that we're talking about the title deed of the earth. And we're talking about a lamb that was slaughtered. What a vision of heaven. A lamb showing the evidence, not just of of discomfort, not just a bruised lamb, but he was a slaughtered lamb. That's how it's translated. A lamb that was slain, suddenly seen in this perfect place, the place called heaven. And he gave his blood to redeem something. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy something. We call Jesus the redeemer. We talk about redemption. When you go to the supermarket, you hand over a coupon and you, you, you say, I would like to redeem this coupon. Redeem is right there on the coupon. And what you're saying is, I'm giving this to purchase that. To remove the price that is on that, I am giving you this, this, this coupon in its place. 
when we realize that it's saying that Christ is our redeemer, what is it saying? It's saying that he shed his blood and that he presented it to the Father to redeem us, to buy us, to purchase us, to pay the debt so that any penalty, any consequence, because we were impoverished spiritually and had nothing to give, and yet Christ came to pay it all. And we find out in the scriptures that the Bible says of us, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, maybe the picture of heaven would have been so much nicer if Messiah had come with bags of gold and presented them to the Father. But what would the Father have said? He would have said, gold, I can speak that into existence just by my word. So what did the Lamb of God give to the Father? He presented to him blood, his own blood. Where could the Father get that? What did the blood represent? Was it just a bloodthirsty God who says, give me some blood here? No, it was actually the evidence that Christ gave his life and he poured the penalty for our sins. And when he died, he ascended into heaven and he presented his blood before the Father, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb that was in the Old Testament that shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But why did man need to be bought? When did all this happen? When did we become debtors? When were we sold? Well, we can find that in the book of Genesis. God had given to Adam and Eve two things, if you read the scriptures. One thing, he gave them the inheritance of the earth. And the second thing he gave them was eternal life. Two things. Two things that mankind lost in a moment. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, describing how God created man in his own image. We created in the beauty of God. We were like him. And God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said to Adam and Eve, you fill this planet I'm giving it to you. He himself planted a garden there. But God intended that Adam and Eve would, would, would be fruitful. They'd multiply. They'd increase. And that they would spread. God gave them a good start, the Garden of Eden. But his intention was is that they would spread the garden. That they would fill it up. He says, you subdue it. You, you rule upon the earth. You learn how to live with those, those things that fly in the sky. And those things that walk in the land. And those things that swim in the sea. And you learn how to live with all the plants that I have provided you with. God said, this is your inheritance. It says in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of mankind. But what happened? Well, let's just, let's just remind ourselves that Satan came as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and he told them to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which isn't that what we're all wrapped up about? What's good? What's evil? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who has what I should have? All that kind of stuff. It's nothing but trouble. God didn't want them to live in a religion of knowing good from evil. He wanted them to know God and God alone. And God says, don't eat of that tree. And there's another tree in the Garden of Eden. It was called the tree of life, the representation of the eternal life. And so what does Satan do? 
He tempted Eve in the same temptation that he fell by. Satan, we read in the Bible, says, I will be like the most high God. So what does Satan do? He goes to Eve. He thought, I got kicked out of heaven and I know how it worked. Here's how I'll get Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I'll tell them this. God doesn't want you to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because he knows that you'll be like God. And suddenly, what cast him out of heaven, he knew if he could tempt them with that, it would cast him out of the Garden of Eden. So they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that action of disobedience where they decided they would be their own God and God's rules don't apply to them, then actually they found them separated from the presence of the Lord. It's called the fall, the fall of mankind. Where did mankind fall from? He fell from his inheritance. What were the two things that God had promised him? The fullness of the earth, the earth. God gave you the earth. The second thing they lost was eternal life. And God told them, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And as soon as they ate that, the process of death began to work in them. And then we find out that what happened is, is that when Eve and Adam dropped the title deed to the earth, which was a covenant that they broke, Satan grabbed it. He grabbed that authority. And that's why, believe it or not, in the Bible, Satan is called the God of this world. Because the inheritance that God had given to Adam and Eve, he wasn't going to take it back. Because the Bible says once God gives something, he doesn't take it back. So Adam and Eve were given the title deed of the earth, subdue it, fill it up, spread the Garden of Eden, make this a glorious place and a glorious home. And Satan got them to lose the title deed. He became the God of this world. That's why when someone says to you, if there is a God, why does he allow there to be suffering and wars and starvations and famines and sickness and disease and cancers and all kinds of things? It's because mankind gave up the title deed to the earth and Satan now has become the little G God of this world. And Christ came. To pay the price to get the title deed back for mankind. Now, I just want to say this. Mankind lost the title deed, and it was going to take a man to get it back. But once Adam and Eve lost the title deed, they got all wrapped up in good and evil Evil had its upper hand, and there was never going to be a man that could rise to the occasion and be worthy enough to take the scroll out of the right hand of God. No man is pure. No man is holy. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. It was a hopeless situation, but God became man and dwelt among us. The story of the virgin birth is not just in some way to ascribe some credibility to some person who said he was a prophet. It was God's plan from the very beginning. And when he said in heaven, let us make man in our image, they knew the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was going to include all of them. And all of them were going to pay a price. And so Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. What was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. What is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. Mary gave Jesus his humanity. 
the Holy Spirit gave Jesus his deity. It's an amazing story. Listen, no one else of any other religion or philosophy or idea has even gotten close to wanting to claim such a thing. Even in the church today, there are people saying, I'm glad to be a Christian. I just believe that Jesus is one of the ways to God. No, there is only one who is before the throne of God, who gave his life, who was righteous and pure and holy in all his ways and was able to receive the scroll out of the firm grip, not of the left hand of God, but it was in the hand of his strength. It shows a willingness of God to say, you are the one, the right hand of God. Let go of the scroll as Jesus took it. It's an amazing thing. Satan lost his legal possession of the earth. It's even dealt with in the scriptures when people ask the question, well, if we've received eternal life, why do we still die? And yet the apostle Paul was very faithful in that and saying the last enemy that will be defeated will be death. So we realize that salvation can be received by the, one, by, the, by the one sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Son of God. But it's a process that God's going to unfold until the fullness of the inheritance is reached and death will be no more, which is an amazing thing. So the strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? What was that call, a call for? Now bear with me. This all ties together. It has to do with the idea found in the scriptures, prophesied in the Old Testament, the idea of a kinsman redeemer. Now what is that? God made sure that the nation of Israel understood fully what it was. When God established the nation of Israel, he gave to families a plot of land. And that was their inheritance. That was their title deed. But we found out, hey, what's happening in America today? You heard about Blackstone buying up all the private properties? You hear about the Gates Foundation buying up farmland? What is that about? There's a place where a nation can get where a certain limited number of people gain so much wealth, they buy up everything. And everyone else then pays rent to them. It's a feudal system, once again, starting to happen in America. God knew that that was going to happen. So what did God determine? That for the nation of Israel, there would be a year of jubilee. Every 50 years would be the year of jubilee. If you lost your inheritance in your land, that other person that took the debt over and got the inheritance of your land, they could have it, but only until the year of jubilee. And then they had to give it back. Because everybody, God wanted everybody to be able to own the land. And the relationship between ownership, land, and liberty is an amazing study on its own. But here as we look at this, we understand that God is saying, mankind, Adam and Eve, they lost the title deed to the earth. Just like I taught the nation of Israel, I'm going to do for them. And God established a law in the nation of Israel that a kinsman, a kinsman, not just anybody, a kinsman, a relative, someone who is family. If he found out that one of his relatives had lost his land and the privilege of tilling his land, he could step up and he would pay the person who was handling the debt 
He could pay him off so that his relative could be restored back to his land. Now, if it was the year after Jubilee, and there's another 49 years that the man could own the land and farm it, then he'd have to pay a lot of money because that man's saying, hey, I have the rights to this land for 49 years. Jubilee's a long ways off. But what if it was the 49th year and the kinsman redeemer comes? He says, I want to pay you for that land. He says, but you know what? You only have one year's worth of work in that land and I'm just going to pay you this smaller amount. But whatever it was, a relative, a kinsman, someone of the same bloodline, was able to step in and pay the price for a relative that had lost everything. And do you understand that when God made us, he created us in the image of God. He, we were in his image. We were in his likeness, right? Just like a son can bear the countenance of his father or his mother. In the same way, God saw his children created in his own image. And because of the debt of sin and the fall of man, we had lost the inheritance of eternal life and of the land that was promised to us. And God became flesh, became like unto us. We received the blood of Christ. We're of the same bloodline. And he was able to pay our debt. And as Jesus is unfurling this scroll, what he's doing is he's declaring by breaking seven seals of seven ways, he's going to take everything back that he died for. Are you getting what I'm saying? Now, the amazing thing in the Bible is this, is that when a kinsman stepped up to redeem the lost inheritance, that as it was being redeemed, there would be the scroll. It's amazing. And they would read the scroll in the gates of the city before the elders of the city as witnesses and testifiers. We have been set free. This man is set free. If you look at this Bible verse right here, it says that in the presence of the elders, the scroll was unrolled, declaring what is rightfully ours. Listen, I believe that we are going to be there for this moment as witnesses because we stand as the joint heirs of Jesus Christ. As he takes possession. Isn't it a beautiful thing? John begins, begins to weep and says, who can open the scroll? Who can do this? The title deed of the earth, it's there. Who can do this? And it says there's a lion. A lion of the tribe of Judah. A descendant of King David. The Messiah. So you would think that John would see a lion because it says there's a lion. And what does John see? He sees the Lamb of God. The lamb who on the first time came to give his life as a sacrifice for sins. At his second coming, he will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Such an amazing picture. Why didn't he see him before? He's been looking at the throne. If you remember when they looked at the throne of God, John just saw a brilliant, deep, green, iridescent light. Surrounded by a red light that was emanating from the throne. And then around that, an emerald green rainbow around the throne of, of God. And you know where the Lamb of God was? Well, if you remember in our study of the church of Laodicea, Jesus said, encourage us to overcome. And he says, because I overcame and sat down with my father 
on his throne. When John was looking at the throne, all he saw was the deep green, the source of life. Green is the color of life. But if you also remember an odd combination that in the glow of the deep green was the glow of the red, and I believe that was because the blood of the lamb was seated with the Father in heaven. And suddenly when that request came out, who can open this book? Then John saw the lamb that had been slaughtered. And he stepped out and he saw that God is in control. He's seated upon his throne and that Jesus is going to restore everything that has corrupted the world and his universe. Listen, no one else is worthy of this position. You want to follow some other teacher, some other prophet, some other whatever, philosopher. No one qualifies as the worthy lamb. There's only one person we need to align ourselves with. That's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. It's very important detail that the Bible says that there was the throne and then there were the elders and the lamb stood between the elders and the throne. Those elders represent humanity and were actually men that walked the earth. So we find out that Christ, as the kinsman redeemer, was worthy to take the scroll out of the right hand of God. The Messiah came, will come in two ways. First is the lamb of God to shed his blood for the sins of mankind. He comes gently He'll come gently to your heart right now. He's not going to come to you like a lion. I'm going to wait till God attacks me, then I'll believe in him. It doesn't happen like that. He'll come to you as the Lamb of God. Come to me, he said, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, gentle, humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul, he says. But now we're watching this great transition between the lamb who's going to become the lion. So what I have to do very quickly is prepare us for next week. You might think that I'm shifting gears, but we're going to enter into what the Bible talks about as a seven-year time of trouble. Predicted for millennia. And I'll move as fast as I can. Ask me any questions you want after. But we, where does this one period of seven years come from? Well, it's a description of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. I love Israel. Many of you have been to Israel with me. We all love Israel. But God is letting them know that there's going to be a time of trouble that's coming. In 538... Years, 538 years before Christ, there was a man, and his name, his name was Daniel. Daniel had realized that he had, as a Jew, been living in Jerusalem for 58 years, and that 
God had promised that, I'm sorry, 68 years. And God had promised that when the Jewish people were captured in Jerusalem, that they would live in Babylon for 68, for 70 years. For 70 years. And Daniel says, wait a minute. The prophet Jeremiah says, this captivity is going to end in, in 70 years. And there's no indication that it's ending. As a matter of fact, things are getting worse for us Jews that are living here in Babylon. There's only two years left. And he began to pray, he began to seek the Lord. God, there's only two years left. Because Daniel understood something. A prophecy doesn't mean that we sit back and say, oh, let's sit around and wait for this thing to happen. A prophecy is a call to prayer. God is not giving us the book of Revelation so we can sit back and say, oh, you know, trouble's coming. Let's just have a tailgate party and wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. That's not what it's about at all. It's about this way it felt called to pray. Because Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church say, come, he's going to come. And this is a call to be a praying people, to long for the kingdom of God. And so Daniel knows there's only two years left, and we're going to be delivered from Babylon. And he begins to pray and to ask the Lord. And God sends an angel, and that angel's name is Gabriel. And if you read the passage, there was a great war. Gabriel wanted to come through with the message for Daniel. And Daniel persisted in prayer until there was a breakthrough, because this is all a spiritual battle. Gabriel came with a message, and Daniel says when he arrived, he gave me insight with understanding. Well, I'm sure that God explained to him, Daniel, for sure, you're getting out of here in two years. But he also released something else to them. He helped them to understand that there's going to be 490 years that come to the nation of Israel, and they're going to be very difficult. So, Daniel, you're going to be restored to the land, but Israel's times of trouble are not over yet. Now, turn in your Bible to Daniel 9.24, right? Daniel 9.24, stay with me. We're prepping for next week. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, the Jewish people, and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. If you watch my daily videos this week, we're going to discuss that. The plan that God has for Israel, this unfolding plan. Basically, today, it's enough for me to say, God says, know this, Israel. Someday, I'm going to wrap things up. I'm going to wrap it all up. All the prophecies will be finished. Righteousness will cover the earth. So he says this. Gabriel says to Daniel, so you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with streets, a moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come, that's referring to the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. Wow. That might seem like it's really hard to unwrap but please bear with me. 
I've got a video, or I'm sorry, but a PowerPoint that'll be over my shoulder. And I would like you to look at that. God is telling the nation of Israel there's a 490-year period in which I'm going to be working. And you need to know that it's going to end up with a tremendous challenge. The Lord says there's 70 weeks that he's going to deal with Israel. He breaks it up this way. There'll be seven weeks. Then add to that 62 weeks. And then there's going to be one week. It says that this unleashing of the 40, 190 years will begin upon the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And if you look in Ezra chapter 11, there was a decree for the restoration and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that happened around four. If you look at regular historic, historical records, they dated somewhere between 444, 445 and 449. Now, the Bible says the 490 years will begin upon the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. So the Lord says the first period is seven weeks. But I want us to understand that that's seven weeks of years. Well, how do we know that? Because the Lord says to rebuild the walls and to restore Jerusalem, it will take seven weeks, and it ended up taking them 49 years to accomplish that. It wasn't seven weeks of days, and that's not strange to the Bible to refer it to it. It's seven weeks of years. It took 49, and God's just letting them know from the declaration to rebuild the walls, the first period will be seven weeks. And then he says after the seven weeks, then there's another 62 weeks. And then he says at the end of 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be removed from the land of the living. The Messiah is going to die. Two amazing things about that. First off, Daniel received the prediction to the year when the Messiah would be here and be sacrificed. And also just the idea of the Messiah being cut off, sacrificed. No, Messiah should come and establish an earthly kingdom and just make everything better and kill the bad guys and bless the good guys. No, wait, Messiah is going to be cut off. Why? He's the lamb who was sacrificed. So seven years to rebuild Jerusalem. Then if we add to that another 62 years, which is 483 years from the decree, the Messiah will be cut off. Are you still with me? Yes. All right. So we read that. But then God at the beginning of the book of Revelation describes what the Apostle Paul received as the time of the Gentiles, where God reaches out to the Gentile world. And it's like these parentheses that are inside these years right here that end up being a total of 490 years. So from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to when the Messiah died was the fulfillment of 69 weeks. But we have one week left. How long is a week? Seven years. What does the book of Revelation deal with? The seven years that are left when God is going to deal with the nation of Israel. And during that time, he's going to wrap everything up. Does the math work out? This decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was made in March 445 B.C. Christ entered Jerusalem in 30 A.D. We know there's a little bit of trouble with when the calendars switch or when Christ came. 
But in 445 BC, when the decree went out, plus 483 years, gets us to 38 AD, which would say the Messiah had to die in 38, but he didn't. He died in 30. Was the scripture wrong? Well, here's where the problem lies. We're thinking in the Julian calendar. In the Julian calendar, there are 365 and a half days in a year. In the biblical calendar, there are 360 days in a year. If you look at the decree to rebuild Jerusalem given in Ezra chapter 11, and you add to it the 490, 483 years, you realize it comes to the very time when Christ was crucified. I just want to say this. It's too late for a Messiah to come. The date came and left already. It's so astounding that God has revealed that to us. And then it says there's one week left. It's seven weeks, seven years left, one week of years when God is going to deal with the earth. As we studied the book of Revelation, I showed you all that because the book of Revelation is not God's dealing with the church. It's God's dealing with the nation of Israel. <laughs> It's going to have global impact, but I believe that we've been caught up into the presence of the Lord and that we're going to ride with him when he comes as the lion to reclaim finally everything that is his as the nations rise up against Israel. Daniel said in chapter 12, verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. What is Daniel saying here? Daniel is reminding us that what we're going to look at in the book of Revelation is a time when a false Messiah, we call him the Antichrist, will rise up. He will present himself to the world. I'm telling you, the world has never been more ready for someone to step up and say, I've got it all figured out. Someone who can say, I can even make a covenant with the nation of Israel and bring peace to the world. The very heartbed of wars and troubles, Israel. And the Lord would just say to us that, that he is reminding us that during these seven years, this man of abomination, a lawless man, is going to rise up he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel and it will be accepted. But halfway through the covenant of the seven years, he will break the agreement and he will establish himself in the temple, on the temple mount, in Jerusalem and set himself up as though he is God. Satan will get back what he has always longed for, the worship of mankind. It's all he's ever wanted. Why did he tempt Adam and Eve? He wanted what they had. What's he moving for yet? The establishment of, of himself upon, in the temple, upon the temple mount in Jerusalem to get the worship he wanted the whole time. It's all he's ever wanted. He came to Jesus and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus stayed on task. So I'm going to close by reading this passage. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will mislead many people. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they'll hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. False prophets will rise and lead many people astray. Lawlessness is increased, and most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and whoever's on the housetop go down and get the things out of the house. Jesus is letting us know first off, before the beginning birth pangs of the end of days is going to be a persecution that's going to come against the followers of Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and Satan hates it. But there is now the day to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with conviction, live the truth, live the truth. Don't, don't live by lies. Now's the time when the Holy Spirit says, stop that, we stop. When he says, go, we go. Sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance. And then Jesus is looking at his Jewish brothers and sisters and he speaks to Judea and he says, when you see the Antichrist rise up and see himself as God, as an abomination before the Lord, you better run for your life. What we're going to be looking at in the book of Revelation is God, his love and his mercy. God has never forsaken the Jewish people. They're the apple of his eye. He's loved them with an everlasting love. He's not done with them yet. You and I, the Gentiles, Christians, we're a parenthesis. No less valuable, but we're a parenthesis. But keep your eyes on Israel. Please watch this week on the daily vlog because the Lord mentions in Ezekiel chapter 38, he mentions Russia, he mentions the Ukraine, he mentions Libya, he mentions the Sudan, he, he, he mentions the, the region of Jordan, that they're all going to rise up and they're going to come against Israel. Stage is being set. I don't know how it's all going to unfold, man, but God's right on time. Can you say amen? Let's all stand up. Father, I thank you, Lord, for, the, for your word. Make us ready, Lord. In Jesus' name. I want to say this. When a man stands before the Lord, it's not going to be about what did you do with this idea? What did you do about with this philosophy? What did you do with this religion? It's going to be one question. What did you do with the Lamb? What did you do with the Lamb? Oh, I'll get in on my own. I'll get in on my own righteousness, my own good behavior. And the Lord would say, but the Lamb died for you. What did you do with the Lamb? There's one sin that will keep a man from heaven. It's not seeing the Messiah, believing in him. Because once you do, he'll wash away all the other sins. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want to ask.
Are you ready to meet Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I'm not asking if you wear the label. I'm asking if you've been born again, filled with the Spirit of God, marked with Him, are you truly a child of God? Have you heard the message of the good news, the gospel, and believed? The Lord says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus paid it all. He did all the work. He's waiting for us to receive the gift of salvation. If you're here today and never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity. It's not a formula, but it is a way to come to Him. He said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. If you want to be included in the closing prayer of giving your heart to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do two things. First off, lift up your hand, just acknowledging Pastor Jim. Today's my day to receive Jesus as my Savior. The second thing I'm going to ask you to do then is before I dismiss everyone, I'm going to ask you to step out of your seat and come forward. I did it years ago because Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the angels and before the Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Are you willing to step out and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Today you can be saved and you can be a witness to the inheritance being obtained by Jesus in heaven. So before I close, lift up your hand just saying, I want Jesus as my Savior today, Pastor Jim. I want to receive him into my heart. If that's you, if you feel that tug in your heart, if you're also like, man, I don't know, well then don't leave here before you know it. Just lift up your hand saying, today I want to be saved. I want my sins washed away. Is there anyone? God, you're so good and so faithful. I pray for each one that's here today, God. Prepare them. Make them strong, bold, courageous, full of faith. Make them willing to do whatever is necessary to follow you. I pray, Lord Jesus, let them be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Bless them, Lord. Bless singles and marrieds and homes and families and the things that are in their care. Just bless these people, Father. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you feel like you drank from a water hose? Probably, right? But listen, just keep reading the book of Revelation because the Bible says just reading it brings a blessing. So keep going over it. God can reveal it to you. God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming today. It's good to see all your faces. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast can be heard on our cccbasalt.com website, the CCC Basalt app, or your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to support our efforts financially, you have the opportunity to give at cccbasalt.com forward slash give.